Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tortoise. Hello. There's a line in Walter Isaacson's new book about Elon Musk that I just can't stop thinking about, and it's not really a story, but it certainly explains one. It's about why he bought Twitter, beyond just wanting to build X as a marketplace for both ideas and money. Musk wanted to stop what he calls, quote, the anti-woke virus. Here's what Musk says, quote, Unless the woke mind virus, which is fundamentally anti-science, anti-merit and anti-human in general, is stopped, civilization will never become multiplanetary. And multiplanetary feels like a moment, but fun enough, it's not the thing that stuck with me. Here's what Isaacson goes on to write. Musk's anti-woke sentiments were partly triggered by the decision of his child, Xavier, then 16, to transition. When Musk found out, he was generally sanguine, but then she became a fervent Marxist and broke off all relations with him. We're going to come back to Musk a little later. But really, this is to say that what we're trying to do in this podcast is not just understand what's happening in the world, but try and make sense of why where it all leads, what next. I'm James Harding. I'm joined by fellow editors, Jeevan Vasagar, who's our climate editor, fresh from investigating the attacks of killer whales on boats off the European coast. Welcome, Jeevan. Hi, James. Basha Cummings is here. She's the host of the Slow Newscast. She herself is deep down a rabbit hole of defence and AI. Basha, thanks for joining us. Hello. And Giles Wattel, our world affairs editor, space nut, and perhaps for that reason, incorrigible fan of Elon Musk. I'll cop to that. (laughs) It's the week beginning the 4th of September, which reminds me it's my mum's birthday. And from our newsroom in London, welcome to the Tortoise News Meeting. Even more schools could contain dangerous concrete at risk of sudden collapse. You don't know how many schools, you don't know how many courts, you don't know how many hospitals, and worst of all, you don't know which ones. Tens of thousands of people are being told to shelter at the popular Burning Man Festival because they are literally stuck in the mud. Hundreds of Eritrean asylum seekers marched on the Eritrean embassy in Tel Aviv to protest against the dictatorship back home. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a f- good job because everyone else has sat on their f- and done nothing? No, no, no signs of that, no? This news meeting, like others, tries to zero in on what matters. So, Jeeve and Basher and Giles, you're each going to tell me which story you think should lead the news. We're then going to chew over each one. And then, as I'm in the editor's chair, 
I'm going to decide the running order, what leads, what follows, and why. By the way, you can also tell us the stories that you think we've missed and the running order that you think the story should be in by emailing us, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com, and we'll include them, your comments, or your voicemails in future episodes. All right, let's start with long story short. In a single sentence, Jeevan, what are you most interested in? Crumbling Britain. Basher? Martha's rule. Giles? Russia's useful idiot. Okay. Jeevan? Crumbling Britain. Britain as a whole or just the school system? Uh, I feel that this is the school system, but it's emblematic of something that's, that's wrong with Britain as a whole. Okay, and, go on. And, and I think the thing that's wrong is something cultural, and it's sometimes referred to as treasury brain. Um, but it's basically the problem that we have in think, reckoning short-term versus long-term costs. So the focus is always on bringing down short-term costs, and we know that long-term costs mount as a result. So we've got delays to HS2, uh, we've got the delays to defence procurement, we've got the failure to do anything serious about public health. We know that's stacking up future costs, but our our accounting rules, our our emphasis on fiscal prudence means that we we underspend in the present. Okay, can you just do one thing at a time? So there's treasury brain, i.e. this is where that story goes, But the actual issue within the school system, this issue of crumbling concrete, what's the story there? So this is something that that has essentially been been known about for years. We we know that there is this uh, material that goes by the unlovely name of RAC, a form of reinforced concrete, uh, that was seen as a sort of wonder material in the 1950s, used to build lots of schools and other public buildings. Um, And um, it's known that there were kind of structural issues with this material. Uh, There was a ceiling of a primary school that collapsed in 2018. Fortunately, it happened at a weekend with no kids, no one around. The Department of Education has basically said, has said years ago that three to 400 schools will need to be replaced every year uh, to get rid of this material. Um, and the Treasury came back to them and basically said, uh, you'll have the funding to replace 100 schools a year. And that was later whittled down under Rishi Sunak to 50 a year. So we're, we're far behind where we need to be. And we, we now have a situation where um, this summer, there are a number of structural flaws discovered in schools. 100 have suddenly been closed. Um, and parents are now figuring out what to do, whether we're going to go back to pandemic-style remote learning, um, you know, in, in the first week of term. I mean, to be fair, it's a tiny proportion of schools, isn't it? And it's, if anything, one of those difficult calls, which is, do you put money into running repairs or do you put money into investing in other things in the education system? Are they getting unfairly clobbered, the mm-hmm. government, for essentially building materials decisions that were made in the 60s and 70s? It's certainly not the case that this government is to blame for those building decisions, but they are to blame for for not fixing this. Um, And we do have a culture of underspending on investment. We we underspend compared to every other other sort of major economy in the world. Basha, what do you think? I think you couldn't get a better emblem of where this country's at than this story. It feels like it's come off the back of a summer where we know we're sort of swimming in excrement, our sewage system is is crumbling. Now at schools, next you imagine it will be surely hospitals built from the same material, council buildings, police stations. Every part of this country is just starting to crumble at the edges. And the fact that they're not publishing the list of affected schools, I think is really remarkable. I don't know what the sort of case for secrecy is in this I mean, the, the public communications are, are a part of what's gone wrong in this mm. story. So Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, not available over the weekend for media interviews, but puts out this sort of bizarre interview to a sort of chill-out disco soundtrack <laughs> in which she sort of patronisingly <laughs> reassures parents, which I think is, is going to just increase anger. Charles, what do you think of this story? I think the own goal from the government's point of view is to have 
acknowledged that they were appraised of the situation a long time ago and to have under-delivered. So, so let's get into, Jeevan, the treasury brain bit of this because the I get Basha's point that it's emblematic of where the country feels we're at, but it's also substantively an example of the way in which politics is translating into real life, by which I mean what feels like the do-nothingocracy of politics today, i.e. we know how much money we can raise from taxes, we know how much money we can raise from debt, we kind of see where we're going on growth, and both parties more or less say the same thing. So we shouldn't be surprised that they don't have the money to do either public services or to do long-term investment. Haven't we just got ourselves locked into a way of thinking about running the country and sorting issues for the future that mean actually, weirdly, even as though we're entering election year, this kind of thing's just going to keep on happening? We're certainly locked into the idea, I think, that there's a straitjacket on spending and that uh, we can only spend more if there's economic growth. And I think it's really interesting if you look at um, if you look at where politics is, as you rightly say, I feel like um, Jeremy Corbyn and Liz Truss have sort of set the parameters of sanity in politics yes. and, and they're set very narrowly. And there's a sort of fear now that if you go outside of that, that boundary, you become one or the other and you spook the markets. The one thing I do want to just do before we come to your story, Basher, is just point you to a voicemail we got in, because I think it's really interesting related to this point about how the government has spent and what the knock-on impact has been on people. It's related, just to give you the backstory on it, about a week ago on the news meeting, I flagged up the number of people signing up for private health care, even though public sentiment is such that people cheer the NHS. And the point I was making was you're not seeing the backdoor privatisation that people often warn about, but next door privatisation, people vocally supportive, but privately signing up for private health care. Hi, it's Robert Campbell from Newcastle upon Tyne. The fact that many people are buying health care insurance, it's a sign of desperation and the belief that it's going to be the only way that they will ever get the treatment that they deserve or need. To quote my brother-in-law, am I ideologically against private health care? But I'm going to have to pay for my hip hop if I'm going to be able to live out the rest of my retirement with any dignity. Without that, let's turn to your story, Basha, Martha's Rule. So this story is one that's quite close to our hearts. Um, it is a story about the death of a 13-year-old girl called Martha Mills who died in the summer of 2021. Um, she sustained a pancreatic injury from a very normal bike accident. Um, I should say that Merope, her mother, is a former colleague of ours who worked at Tortoise and she's a friend of many of ours. And after Martha died in hospital, um, an inquest found that actually Martha was would have been likely to have survived the sepsis that she uh, later contracted. Um, had consultants made the decision to move her to intensive care sooner than they did, and that ultimately the doctors who were looking after her failed to respond properly, adequately, when she was showing clear signs of serious, serious infection. Um, and what's remarkable about this story is that Martha's parents, Paul and Merope, have tried to look at, well, have fearlessly looked at the ways in which their daughter were failed and have been now campaigning to to try and ensure that the set of problems that they encountered don't happen to other families. And the, and the problems that they encountered are really extraordinary. And they're not ones that you hear about in the NHS very often. You, you We often hear about, you know, um, underfunding, under-resourcing, stretched staff. But this, this isn't an example of that. What, what 
Martha's family say is that this was a catastrophe that was caused by overconfidence, by a failure to listen to patients and their families when things are going wrong. Um, and Merope, who's now an editor at The Guardian, wrote an article there where, and there's one line which re- really stuck with me, which is, which sort of encapsulates, I think, how many of us think about the NHS. She said that we had such trust and we feel such fools. Um, and today, a new report has been released, uh, which is calling for a change in, in all hospitals in the UK about how doctors interact with patients and the families of patients who are ill. Um, it's by a think tank called Demos, and I should say that Tortoise did contribute some funding to the research. So fundamentally, what they're calling for is really a culture change between the relationships with medics and patients. Um, so if I just take a couple of examples that Merope has talked about quite extensively now she was on on the radio it's worth saying isn't it that Merope's done an interview with Michelle Hussein which is on the BBC website to give the today program its due they obviously made a call which was to say you know what we're just going to rip up the running order on the today program and just listen in full to the story of what happened to Martha and the experience of Merope and Paul and those editorial decisions don't happen often. And I think it is an attempt, isn't it, to try and get into, as you say, not funding of the NHS, you know, but cultural practices. Mm. And for that, I think you need to hear the depth and the nuance of a human story, which is, I think, why that interview is so extraordinary. And it is hard to listen to, but I, and Merope, you know, explains it so much better than I will. But just to pick out a few of the moments which I think are examples of of where things went wrong and now what this new rule that they're calling for might try and fix. So um, Merope described in the interview that at one point when Martha was really, really ill, by then had developed an infection, um, although that the word sepsis wasn't used in front of Merope and Paul, Martha's parents, that, she, that a consultant was outside Martha's cubicle whispering and Merope was sort of craning out to try and hear what was being said. And she's, she says now how remarkable it was that the doctors weren't including her in those conversations, that even as they began to understand that Martha's condition was really deteriorating, that they didn't include the parents. There's something, by the way, just to pause for a moment about that whispering. It's not just they didn't include her. They thought there was something at risk by having her in the conversation and that they visibly excluded her. Yeah, and that speaks to something that Merope has also raised, which is that, um, you know, when she was raising her concerns and trying to engage with consultants and, and the doctors, that um, that her concern was sort of belittled as a mother's anxiety. Mm. That that and, and she said that that and the way that they treated Martha's high heart rate, there was there was hints of misogyny there that, that, you know, that these were sort of women getting over anxious or a mother becoming hysterical rather than, you know, a very legitimate and important factor in the care of this very sick young girl. There is one thing just to be said to the credit of the NHS, which is that when they did describe afterwards what had happened, they did identify these culture clashes between different units. Mm. They did it's extraordinary for us to see it because you never really get it plotted out as clearly. But I thought the fact that, well, it was Merope originally who said, look, the nurses 
logged the fact there was a sepsis risk and a risk of death seven days before and the consultants weren't saying, i.e. that tension between nurses and consultants. But then also, I think the follow-up inquiry did recognise that there was a culture clash between, believe it or not, the liver ward and the paediatric mm. intensive care unit. Yeah, and I think, you know, they lots of doctors have come forward to say that they recognise the cultures and behaviours that occurred at King's Hospital, which is where Martha died, in their own places of work. Mm. But it should I should also say that they've also had some abuse, that there are Reddit threads. which right? Yeah, which have which have sort of where doctors and junior doctors comment on on news and cases saying that you know what what should the family expect they you know that, that it's un, unsustainable to have families complaining so much and okay let's dig into that though because i thought the thing that's interesting about the way they've approached this is they're not asking for some whole new body of legislation martha's rule as i understand it is is quite precise and and in its own way not that disruptive, I'd have thought, to the operations of a ward or a hospital. So the rule, just to outline exactly what they're calling for, so that they're basically asking, and this does this is in place already in one NHS trust in uh, in Berkshire, which is a system where if you're if if you are the family of a patient or a patient and the and you're and things are not looking good and the family want to have a second opinion on on care that they have a right not a discretionary right not one that you know the consultants if they deem it appropriate or they want to can can call up but that you have a right to call a number or seek a second opinion of a consultant it's not confrontational it's not it's not seen as a you know as an affront to the doctors and consultants who are caring for the patient um and but that it should be a right of the family to when when they can see their loved one and they know their loved one better than anyone else to be taken seriously and not seen as intrusive or obstructive or you know trying to undermine the care that's going on Charles I do wonder to what extent this is ultimately going to be especially if if the recommendations are adopted become a question of staffing and resources it's clear and Merapi does a really important service in make, in making clear that at the time of Martha's death it was, as uh, Basha has said, not a question of resources. But, uh, and it's also clear from the Demos report that there are pilot projects and other projects working elsewhere in the world, Pittsburgh, Australia, and the One Trust uh, here, uh, where it's working. But in practice, if you are to institute a system in which patients have this automatic right to not just any second opinion, but especially second opinion, then presumably you have to have those people on call. And presumably in a case like this, uh, it can't, they can't phone in the second opinion. You're going to have to have someone available who is not on holiday who can come in and, and take a look. They are, but Josh, the thing that impressed me about it, and you know me, I'm by nature kind of more interventionist, something must be done, it needs to be mm. kind of firm and strong. But the thing that I think is interesting is that it is just asking for access to a second opinion. It's not that the second opinion has to overrule the consultant's right. mm. opinion. And the the NHS trust here, the Berkshire case, is interesting, isn't it? 37 cases, you say. It's not too onerous, is the point. What's really interesting in the report is that you can see that it really works in the other places that it's being instituted. So, for example, at a medical centre in Jacksonville in the United States, where this uh, helpline... Uh, an evaluation of 193 calls a month over three months, they found a 
cardiac arrests went from 25.2 per month to 17.4 following the introduction of the family activation system. Jeevan. It's the kind of story that really gets you, isn't it? Just really gets you. I think, um, just putting aside maybe our feelings for a moment, I think one thing that kind of struck me about this story is the kind of things we're talking about, kind of hierarchy, overconfidence, silos, the weekend dip. They feel really familiar. They feel like we've talked about them for, for years and years. And a part of me sort of wonders whether something like Martha's Rule, which feels like a good thing, feels like empowering thing for patients. I wonder whether that will really address the question here, especially if you're not the kind of... I mean, I mean, Merope herself spoke about this. You know, she's a fluent, assertive person, and even she wasn't really able to make a, a difference here. So, so what does it mean if, you're, if you don't speak English as your first language or you're from a working-class background? Can you, can you really challenge this? There's one thing that really sticks in my mind, a conversation I had with a doctor about an illness where um, he said at one point, um, well, the patient will understand his condition best when I questioned him. I don't know if he actually believed that. But it really, it really helped me. It really made me think, oh, well, he's, he's taking me seriously. And it meant that I, I listened to everything he said after that point. I, I know that medical schools think about this. And I wonder if there's, an, wonder if there's a deeper cultural en- element that needs to be addressed here. Mm. Basha, thank you. Let's take a moment and then, Charles, we'll come to your story. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Charles, Russia's useful idiot. Is Elon Musk, I assert. Really? Despite the fact that I'm uh, the fan, yes. And I'm hoping we won't be sued over saying that. Um, Elon will understand that useful idiot is a phrase that you use about fellow travellers with... And given his enthusiasm for free speech, I'm sure he'd be exactly, exactly. supportive of it. So the, very briefly, there are two... Uh, Ukraine stories that this is not. One is that uh, the the counteroffensive in the south is making progress. I hope so. Is it true? Not clear. It's still very much incremental. Okay. And the other is that um, the defence minister um, Reznikov has been replaced over the weekend. This is not a great surprise. There are reports of corruption in the procurement process. He's not personally associated with them. But George, I understand. Is the Reznikov sacking a corruption story or is it a lack of progress 
I think on it, the battlefront story. I think it's a Zelensky reset story. We need new approaches, he said. And at this point, Occam's razor says, let's take him at face value. They do need new approaches. It ain't working yet. Okay, so what do you so so what's the Elon Musk Russia's useful idiot story then? Is that the EU and only the EU has published a report pointing out that Russian misinformation on social media platforms has uh, increased in number and amplification since the invasion, um, and it, this coincides with the quote dismantling of safety standards at Twitter and the period in which it has been bought and renamed by Elon Musk. So there's more than there was before. It coincides with the Musk Twitter takeover. Um, the numbers are inevitably huge. The EU study targeted an audience of 165 million people, more than 16 billion views of content. Uh, on Twitter specifically, there were 210,000 posts last year, English language posts last year alone, using the word Ukro-Nazis. Other platforms, uh, all the usual suspects, including TikTok and particularly YouTube, um, prominent in the study. But, but isn't Elon Musk pulling in exactly the opposite direction to this? He's the one that's saying, actually, we want a Twitter or an X platform that is much less moderated, much less restrictive. Yes, and that is how you're getting all this misinformation under the wire. And the real world impact of that is Tucker Carlson uh, mainlining on all this information and on Twitter regurgitating it for national American audiences. What exactly are we calling misinformation? We're talking about misinformation in relation to the uh, justification for the war. Um, Tucker Carlson and others broadly accept Putin's view of Russian history, which is that um, Ukraine is not a real country. Uh, and I think more insidious is the argument now that because of all the bloodshed on both sides, let's, let's park the question of who's responsible. It's time to negotiate. All right, let's... On that note, try and make sense of these three stories. Which story should lead the news? Um, as I said, because I'm in the editor's chair, I'm going to try and make a determination at the end of, of the running order. Assuming that you can't choose your own story, Charles, what would you go with? Martha's Rule. Basher? I'll go with The Useful Idiot. Ukraine. Because? Misinformation. Because I think that it's... It's a it's a neat way into, as Giles has explained, a kind of cascading issue that gets you all the way to the presidential election. And I think, you know, we focus on X, but I think there are big questions about TikTok and China's role and what misinformation may be circulating there and, and the kind of geopolitics of that. So I, I think it's it it's one of those stories that starts small but gets you actually to the whole world order. Chiefen? For me, it's Martha's rule. And it's a story with a human heart that raises a really deep cultural question. Um, you won't be surprised to know that I think the same. And that's not just because we know Merope and, and Paul and the family. I think there was something that Merope said that really struck me, which was about being sent what she called institutional condolences. This idea that institutions send you a version of sorry that you know they repeat to others and in that repetition don't really consider what that says about their own cultural behaviour. There's something about trying to change institutional behaviour in this that feels so important, not just in the care for a child like Martha, but in care throughout the NHS and in institutions more broadly. So for that reason, I think it, it obviously and rightly leads. 
I would then run um, with um, crumbling concrete, partly because, as you say, Jeevan, it feeds into the sort of unreliable kingdom narrative of the UK. But I think that you really zeroed in on what matters in this, which is promising change, but not being willing to change anything about the financing of it, the treasury brain problem. And if you keep focusing on that and keep making that, if you like, the third paragraph of that story, people will see a pattern that forces a change to the argument in politics. And although actually Musk and the platform, the knock-ons in terms of, you know, US and Western support for Ukraine is a colossal story, if anything, it illuminates what we already worry about. So for that reason, I'd run it third. But for today's news meeting, that's how we'd run it. Martha's rule, crumbling Britain. Russia's useful idiot. Basha, thank you. Thank you. Charles, thank you very much. Thank you. Jeevan, uh, thank you too. Um, as I said at the beginning, you can email us if you want uh, at the news, news meeting at tortoisemedia.com. If there's a story that you think we've missed or a story that you think we've not read right, please just let us know. We'd love to hear what you think. Um, one of the things we want to do with the news meeting is invite people in who've got a different point of view to challenge the group think of news generally and our newsroom in particular. We're going to be joined by Yalda Hakim, who's the BBC World News presenter. She'll be with us on Friday. Until then, we leave you with Merope Mills in her own words. Here she is talking about Martha. When you are in hospital, you are totally powerless. And um, one lesson from Martha's deterioration is that more agency on the part of patients to challenge the culture will make hospitals safer. And asking for a second opinion when there's a deterioration shouldn't be a problem or uh, and it shouldn't involve confrontation. So the idea of Martha's rule it, it effectively would formalise uh, the idea of asking for a second opinion um, from a different team outside the team who are currently looking after you uh, if there's what was described in Martha's case, a sense of team blindness or you feel like you're not being listened to. Martha would be 16. She would be today. 16 today, yeah. She died just before her 14th birthday. Yeah. What do you tell yourself to, to get through the day? <laughs> um, well... <laughs> God, that's how crazy you tell. Um, well, in all honesty, her sister's what gets me through the day. But um, <laughs> but I, I I don't know if that's. I think that's very understandable. Um, I I can. She would be sixteen, and I think about her all the time, every day, and. Um, he had one of the world's greatest laughs, the sort of um, gift to the world, her laugh. It was the sort of laugh that was an invitation to be part of whatever she was finding funny and the joy she was getting out of life. And every day I see something I want to show her or tell her just so I can see her smile like that again. I think about what she'd be doing and how much fun she would be having and how much fun she's already missed. And I hope that in having these conversations, 
we can stop other people going through this horror. Tortoise. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.